really excited to be preaching today. It's one of those two big reasons I'm excited. First, unlike in our classes, um, I've actually been asked to speak today, um, which is a big relief. And if relief is not the emotion you're feeling, I totally understand. Um, secondly, uh, I've been sitting with this passage um, for this sermon since August, and I found out I was going to be preaching on it. And the more I reflect on it, the more I find, feel I find layers upon layers of beauty, richness, and challenge. It begins with a man who comes to Jesus and asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And these words are familiar to us and are often taken to mean, what must I do to go to heaven? But as we've been studying, the, the Jewish idea of eternal life is not as simple as that. We don't have a we don't have time for a full exploration of this, but some commentators describe eternal life as life in the world to come, like an experience of the kingdom of God that begins in the here and now, but that goes on forever. And the English term that we use, eternal life, is misleading, because it implies that the most important element of eternal life is its infinite length. That's some of it, but it's not all of it, because it's also a life that we're invited to of infinite depth. We do not obey in order to qualify for a life that doesn't end. We obey because it leads to a depth and a richness of life that begins in this moment and goes on forever. And so Jesus responds to the man and he says, do not murder, do not steal or defraud, do not commit adultery, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And we can speed through that so quickly. And the danger of reading it too quickly is that we only see what is there but I believe that the answer to the meaning of this passage is actually found in what is missing. To solve this mystery, we have to ask the question, where have we heard these before? The clue is in what Jesus says. You know the commandments. But he doesn't give all of the Ten Commandments. He skips to halfway through. The ones that he mentions are the relational commandments. They are the commandments that defined the boundaries of our life together the way we treat each other in life, the way we treat the covenants we make together, the way we treat the boundaries between what is yours and what is mine. But one of these commandments is missing. Which one? Do not covet. Coveting is about never being satisfied with what you have. It's about always wanting more, about always desiring what others have. It's at the heart of our greed and our dissatisfaction and our need to consume. It's also the foundation of our economy that needs us to never be satisfied so that we will keep longing, buying and spending in a way that makes us compete with those whom we should love, that makes us ignore those who we should serve and, the, and destroy a planet that we should be protecting. But today is about Mark rather than Marx, so we can continue that conversation. <laughs> the rich man responds, he says, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And then in this following remark from Jesus, we see his grace and his brilliance. First, he looks at him and he loves him because he knows that what he's about to say will be hard for him to hear. But he loves him enough to tell him the truth, that the path to his freedom and liberation will be painful. And then Jesus says, one thing you lack. What a bizarre thing to say. What a bizarre way to put it. This is a wealthy man who has everything that he could need. But I've generally found that if you want to annoy a wealthy man, tell him there's one thing he does not have. <laughs> he could have said in so many ways, there is one thing that you have done wrong. 
There's one sin that you have omitted. There's one problem that you haven't solved. But he doesn't. He says, there is one thing you lack. What does the man lack? He lacks the ability to know when he has enough. And because he lacks this, he will keep accumulating, keep possessing, and keep consuming, thinking that the problem is that he doesn't have enough, rather than realizing that life will never be found in what you own. And so the man walks away, shocked and grieving, because he had too much to let it go. And the lectionary that guides our worship is a brilliant resource in so many ways. But today it is brilliant because it pairs this gospel reading with the verses from Job, where the rich man arrives at Jesus speaking like Job in verses 3 to 7. Oh, that, oh, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to even his dwelling. I would lay my case before him like the rich man seeks to do with Jesus. I would fill my mouth with arguments. arguments. All these I have kept since I was a boy. I would understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would give heed to me. There an upright person could reason with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. But he leaves like Job. In chapter 23, verses 16 and 17, God has made my heart faint, and the Almighty has terrified me. If only I could vanish in darkness, and that the thick darkness would cover my face. Once the rich man has left, Jesus looked around and says to his disciples, How hard will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven? It will be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God. I was confused about this growing up, because it seems pretty definitive. There is no blender big enough and no funnel small enough to get a camel through the eye of a needle. <laughs> And the way that it was explained to me in church was that actually in Jerusalem there was a gate called the Eye of the Needle. And when a camel would approach the gate, you would have to unpack everything off it and then repack it once it had come into the holy city. Which was a, a really helpful bit of context with one tiny problem. No such gate exists. But at some point Christians started making up ways to defend ourselves from the challenges of Jesus' teaching about our wealth, about what we accumulate, about what we take to be our own. And these are ways that we protect the wealthy from being shocked and grieved, and ways that we give ourselves permission to accumulate without contemplating. These are the lengths that we will go to to maintain our right to own and to consume. And it's at this point that Peter pipes up and he says, Look, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. I love Peter. One cannot help but wonder if he ever had a thought he kept to himself. Um, <laughs> something I'm sure one or two of you have said about me. Um, <laughs> And I love the idea that Jesus looked at the rich man and loved him. And sometimes he looked at Peter and wondered if he still did. Um, but Peter is right. They have left everything to follow him. And Jesus responds, he says, Truly I tell you, no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or, mo or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and the sake of the good news will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this age, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, field persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. All of this talk of houses is very exciting. Uh, I love messing with people when they ask me why I'm pursuing ordination. Whenever they ask, I, I like to say that it's the only way I could ever see myself uh, get living in a house in this Dublin property market. <laughs> Lay ministry in this economy. Um, <laughs> but at this moment, we need to hear Jesus less like a game show host or a contract lawyer, more like a mystic and a rabbi. 
Because Jesus does not invite people to follow him by appealing to their greed and covetousness, by saying, don't worry, I'll satisfy your greed and your need for more stuff in the next life. Heaven will be no capitalist bonanza. And you'll see, he's not even talking about the next life. He specifically says, in this age. So what does he mean? Does he mean that he's going to multiply our family members like loaves and fishes? Or does he mean that the communities of the good news in which we live and serve will become our families? Does he mean that we will own houses? Or does he mean that we will live such interdependent lives that the lines where your home ends and mine begins will disappear so that you will know that you will always have a home with me and I will always have one with you? As ministers in this beloved community, this is the way that we are invited to love and serve and lead. We are called to be people who look and love and tell the truth to the world that has believed the lie that what you, what you own will make you whole. We are called to be people who understand that what most of us lack is not things, but true, deep, and intimate connection and community that turns strangers into family, that turns new places into new homes, that turns disconnected strangers into communities and places of intimacy, authenticity, growth, where we can look at each other, love each other, and tell the truth to each other. May we be those kind of leaders. May we be those kind of Christians who know what it is that we lack, who know what it is that we seek, and know what it is to which we have been called. Thank you.